Okay, can I welcome everybody to Hudson? Uh, thank you very much for coming, uh, especially on such an uh, important day. We all know how important September 11th is in, in US history. I actually was outside the Pentagon and saw the plane hit the building um, 17 years ago. Um, and it's to avoid these kind of uh, challenges, or at least minimize in the future, that I think we're what, when one reason why we're gathered here today to talk about the importance of cooperative threat reduction and, and collaboration between countries and agencies to deal potential threats. Um, what I really like about the, the CTR program is it's probably the best example we have of uh, a, a productive collaboration between academia, academia NGOs, uh, private sector entrepreneurs, funders, and the government uh, and going back to the origins, I, I believe from a, you know, Harvard seminars, working then with uh, the Ted Turner and so on, and then basically getting other other people in government, other countries, getting to support it. Today's talk is the latest in a series we're running on nuclear security and nonproliferation. Uh, and this is supported very generously by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Um, what uh, what the, the, we will do, the outline of today's talk is uh, uh, I, uh, I'm just going to make a couple more comments, then I'll turn it over to the various speakers. The first person will speak just very briefly will be Mika Lowenthal, who's director of the Committee on Security and Arms Control, often referred to as CSAC at the National Academy of Sciences. Um, and uh, among other activities, they held a symposium, copies of which are outside and downloadable, um, which was really informative. I went for both days, and I think we all learned a lot. And that's why I was really happy when they agreed to come and share uh, their insights uh, with us. Then the next speaker will be Libby Turpin to my right. Uh, she's president of Octan Associates, um, a, a non-resident adjunct of the Institute for Science Analyses. Uh, has worked in the past for uh, uh, on various federal, commercial, and not-for-profit uh, entities dealing with nonproliferation. Um, she's also worked at, on congressionally appointed panels from the Department of Energy and the National Nuclear Security Administration laboratories, and uh, worked also, particularly in the Simpson program, for a while on these various topics. And then the, the next speaker, uh, and the last will be, to my left, will be David France, who's uh, had served uh, with distinction for several decades at the US Army Medical Research and Material Command, a now retired colonel, uh, but works on supporting many of these kind of projects, including the National Academy of Science uh, Committee on Strengthening and Expanding the CTR program and has a specialty in, in, in bio, uh, bio threats. Uh, because we want to encourage participation, as we saw at the symposium, uh, I'm encouraging people who are watching on live stream to participate. You can do that by emailing me. Uh, you can send comments. You can send questions, and I'll read them aloud. My email address is whites at Hudson, very simple, just my last name at hudson.org, the name of the river. Um, we are also tweeting this at uh, Twitter is going to be at Hudson Institute, one word. Um, and that's it for preliminaries. There's food outside. Uh, the, the restrooms are outside as well. 
Uh, so after, after the presentations, we'll then open up for discussion and questions. Thanks, Richard. Um, so as, as you said, I'm Michael Lowenthal. I am uh, the director of the Committee on International Security and Arms Control at the National Academy of Sciences. And the National Academy of Sciences hosted this um, symposium. We organized it. I'll just say a word about the Academy. The Academy is a non-governmental, government-chartered uh, institution. It was created 150 years ago. Uh, signed, the charter was signed by uh, Abraham Lincoln. And it is was chartered to provide advice to the government and to the nation. Uh, the Committee on International Security and Arms Control was formed almost 40 years ago to engage counterparts in other countries, Russia, then China, and then India in these security dialogues. And we, from time to time in CSAC, do studies, uh, including this 2009 study on global security engagement, a new model for cooperative threat reduction. A few years ago, Ben Russick, who's sitting in the front row here, had an idea that maybe it was time to revisit cooperative threat reduction, look at uh, the directions it might take for the future. The program on advanced systems and concepts for combating weapons of mass destruction, uh, a grants program funded by the, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, agreed to fund this uh, symposium that we held last fall. And Libby Turpin and Dave Franz kindly agreed to chair the planning committee for this activity. And so that's the context. I'm going to turn it over then to Libby. I have to multitask here, just a little bit. Um, welcome, everybody. Thanks for, for turning out today. Um, let me talk a little bit about, about uh, the report in terms of mine and Dave's co-chairing of the committee. Um, because I think it gives a little bit of context to how difficult it is to wrap your arms around what is cooperative threat reduction. And I see a lot of new faces in the room. So CTR means something to one person and something different to another, contingent on the vantage point from which they've observed the activities or the efforts. Um, at least that's my, my lesson learned from, from scouting, or, scouting the terrain in and outside of government. Um, just one. Uh, other data point in terms of my background. I started my, my 20 plus years here in DC in the Senate, sort of quasi overseeing and, and shepherding the, the CTR and like efforts at DOD, DOE, and, and the State Department. And then I went to Stimson, where I was a think tanker and did sort of the blue sky, big picture stuff. And then I segued into to the commercial sector where I've been supporting these programs sort of from a bottom-up sort of lens. So I have the unique um, vantage point of not being able to hold a job, but also being able to see things from, from, from both the conceptual standpoint as well as the operational um, and trying to translate between those, those two aspects of how we think about these efforts. Um, what I tried to do, next slide, Dave and I tried to convene a series of panels over the course of, of one and a half days that would look at the broad scope. So we, it was entitled Cooperative Threat Reduction. It was supposed to be a 10-year look back, look ahead from a report that was 
generated by the National Academies in 2008 that became dubbed, it was called Global Security Engagement, but it became dubbed CTR 2.0. And so going from 10 years ago in that National Academies report to today, how have the programs evolved and where are the operational glitches in this global environment that has become even more complex and unpredictable? So what you see in the report is not a National Academies report such as in 2008. It is a reporting out of that series of discussions, right? And, and the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on this is that how that report is received, which Ben brought copies of, also hinges on what's your vantage point for looking at these. Um, if I'm not mistaken, the National Academies is not allowed to make hard and fast recommendations in that sort of report. It's just a reporting out of what the panelists' views and perspectives are on this. So my task was even more complicated in a sense because what I tried to do was go through the report and, and pick themes to bring up and discuss and then figure out how do I provide some flow from the thematic between those different vantage points and the panelists who spoke and try to bring it full circle. And it's a little bit less of a resounding conclusion and a little bit more of a lot of questions related to how do we think about these, these activities and programs over the next decade. So first slide, that's up to me. Uh-oh, see, already. There we go. So what I just touched on is really pertinent, and I'll, and I'll get more into this in a little bit, but cooperative threat reduction, it has this robust legacy that I'll get into in a second, of resounding successes at minimal cost. If you were to compare CTR to, to any major weapons platform and quantify what it has done for our security, it's like a no-brainer in terms of a pound of an ounce of prevention for a pound of, of cure, essentially. Ron Lehman, who was one of the first panelists uh, in the discussion, spent a lot of time on is it 2.0, 3.0, 2.5, sort of to label it, right? At the very end of the, of the um, symposium, uh, Laura Holgate gave a, a really interesting keynote on perhaps the label is cooperative risk management. I'm going to return to that at the end. As I suggested, things have just become more diffuse and complex in terms of addressing threats, risks, vulnerabilities, et cetera. And all of that is impacted by, by advances in technology. And a lot of the panelists know more about technology than I do. So read the report, and you can see what they said about those things. I'll touch on this as well, though. It did, for me, surface this increasing need for science and technology, technological sort of cooperation. That's kind of pervasive in terms of thinking about advances in technology and traditional WMD, and how, to, how do we address the spectrum of, of risks and threats. To me, one conclusion is that it's not one or the other. It's full spectrum in warm, ready standby because it's so unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen in Northeast Asia next, 
what's going to happen in the future of U.S.-Russia relations, what's going to happen U.S.-China, South Asia, India, Pakistan. I mean, just look anywhere on the globe, and it seems to be flashing red in one domain or another. Something very difficult, however, is that term WMD, because the nuke and the chem and the bio are so radically different in terms of approaches and how we think about them and what's the treaty treaty basis for, for cooperation. Second to last bullet point, it's become increasingly complex because more people are engaged, as, as Richard touched on, NGOs, international organizations, industry, all of it in a cooperative vein. But sometimes, I'll admit, turf battles, mine not yours, that still comes into play. And coordination just within the US government has never been ideal. Metrics, let's go back to labels. So, as I said, 2.0, 3.0, how do we want to talk about this? 25 year history, and again, how you profile that 25 years history is going to depend on vantage point. But I would say from a tectonic shift point, we went from a lot of elimination and consolidation and providing security to a lot of capacity building. And that's just sort of the, the wave of over 25 years. That global, and it, again, this was conceptually, it was about dealing with Cold War threats. Former Soviet Union geographically subscribed. And in its first decade, it was like, hey, wait a minute, some of these tools are applicable globally, and we can use them in other, other scenarios. But as that tectonic shift occurred, more and more questions arose as to, why are we doing this? What is the impact? How is this providing for US security? Broader range of actors, a lot of people coming to the table. There was a strong suggestion, I think by more than one panelist, that, that it's more important to lean on the international organizations as those fora for cooperative endeavors. Never mind just the treaty basis of things, the Global Initiative to Combat Nuclear Terrorism proliferation security initiative, those types of modalities, because those are the venues in this environment that provide some vehicle for that conversation. Russia cooperation. This got a, got a fair amount of, of time during the forum. Certainly, those of us who have been around these programs for a long time look as, at the Russia model as a suggestion of, of what is feasible and what may be useful in the event of something changing in North Korea. But it's not ideal and not applicable in other scenarios, right? Let me just say with respect to, to the Russia thing, one of the, the, the foremost important facets of CTR over the course of its first two decades was the fact that it didn't matter what the headlines were. CTR marched forward at sort of that mid-level technical cooperative sort of making progress, despite the fact that we went through two iterations of NATO expansions and, and the, the Serbia bombing campaign. So the headlines were, were a distraction from what was happening to make progress at, at sort of that mid-level um, agency progress. I'm not getting 
the sentence structure right there, but you get the point. Um, that's no longer true. And I think that's going to come back to bite us big time. If we don't think hard about, don't get distracted by that stuff. Because that's, that's for political consumption. What do we need to be doing to find the niche areas and new modalities to be more transparent and cooperative, cooperative with, with Russia? Um, Global security engagement was the title of, of the earlier National Academies report. I'll get to that a little bit more. That legacy. And I did this in particular because for a lot of people, CTR branding is this, the, the so-called DOD CTR scorecard. And let me tell you from appropriation standpoint, this is golden, right? You can quantify all the things that CTR did over the course of its history. Missiles destroyed, warheads deactivated. There are people here in the audience who are directly involved in that. So um, they're the, the, the unsung heroes of, of a lot of this. You know, decommissioning delivery subs, shipments of materials for consolidation purposes, chemical weapon sites and chemical warheads destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. The reason I put this up here is that there is no way to translate this sort of scorecard into today's CTR activities. It goes back to labels and how you think about things. Touched a little bit on this, but, but their strategic surprise is reality, right? We don't, it's the unknown unknowns. And I know people hated that when, when Rumsfeld said it, but in this environment, I believe at its core, there's a truth to that. We don't know what we don't know. Technology has upsides, downsides, right? It's a driver in that unpredictable, un unpredictability. But, and it also truncates that timeline from emergent to imminent threat, right? There's another one that people hated, Bush too, preemptive. What was suggested with respect to preemptive act, you know, actions? Well, it's because of that timeline. Emergent becomes imminent in a heartbeat. And technology is, is part of the means by which those timelines get so compressed. So for me, what does that say? Doom and gloom? No. It means we need to be out there engaging more. It's about more transparency. It's about the science and technology cooperation. It's about connectivity. One of the exercises I was involved in talking about this from one particular vantage point, people were like, do you have the regional connectivity to deal with the what if? So if you think about it as the Rolodex, are you connected to those pivot points, those agencies in country X that will be the first responders in the case of? If you think about it sort of in that context, it is a connectivity issue. And you can't get there in isolation, obviously. The predictive capability for me, and there was one panelist from Planet Risk. So if you're interested in this piece, look, look up the notes from, from that panel. We need more predictive capability. 
and this is a much longer conversation and perhaps fodder for a venue, but, but the way we go about intel collection and slicing and dicing, I'm going to misquote it, but I'm paraphrasing it. Basically, at one, at one point, the panelist said, if you're creating a database, it's already antiquated by the time it's created. So we're not making use of all source and dealing with data streams in a more comprehensive way to get more ahead of the curve in terms of prediction and, and those capabilities. So I already touched on this, but, but for me, it's like it's, it's all of the above. And if you look at it a little bit from, from what was going on over the last decade, at least from the DOD frame, Nuke was like this because Russia went out of business and bio was going like this, question mark as to threat reduction and the metrics related to that, right? And all of a sudden, Syria pops up. And you're using quasi-traditional CTR to go in and deal with the chemical weapons in Syria. Another point related to that, and Mallory Stewart was so eloquent in talking through that particular example. Example. She talked about how they get the call at state, you're going to be on a plane 48 hours from now to go negotiate with the Russians and the OPCW and the whatnot to remove the weapons from Syria. So they get on the plane and they're like, what? <laughs> you know, this is not scripted at all. But what she, what she, the story that she told was they were sitting down with people they knew. All of those counterparts were known quantities because of CTR. And it was really the knowledge, collective knowledge, on the part of the Russians and at the OPCW of what capabilities could be brought to bear and, and accepted acknowledgment of that cap those capabilities that allowed them to succeed in that endeavor. So if you don't have the discussion going on, you're going to be starting at ground zero in the face of that sort of threat. It's a, it's a really profound, you know, one example of how important that engagement is. You know, it requires all of these things. And, and we, don't, we don't emphasize this point enough. But it's not just about threat reduction in the, in the Russia model, you know, the Cold War collapse of a, of a WMB empire, right? It's also about exploiting opportunities. So all those tools that are in Warm Ready Standby are available for that moment that's not predicted when an opportunity arises. And if you're ready and can go and address that, whatever that is, all the better, right? So it's not just, again, it's not just the Russia model. It's also the exploiting of the opportunities. And we're going to have to be more nimble about exploiting those opportunities as things become more unpredictable. This last sub-bullet, warm, ready, standby, how do you justify that? You know, if you're not using it, mothball it, store it in a, in a shed somewhere. We can't go to that mentality, at least in my view, because of how things are shifting and how unpredictable it is. This view is very much based on the Russia model, but, it, but it, there, it's thematically spread throughout, throughout the report. This is just my summary of it. Why is S&T cooperation so important? Well, 
it's, the int it's oftentimes the entry point. We would have been nowhere if not for the science and techn technological cooperation going on during the Cold War. It was the lab-to-lab, -lab, no kidding, scientists who already had the connectivity that provided them the foundation for, for all of the programs that were spawned from that. I put a question mark related to exit strategy. This is a DOD mentality. If you don't have an exit strategy, don't go in, <laughs> right? The point of engagement is not to have an exit strategy because the predictability is based on situational awareness. If you don't have that connectivity, you're gonna be pretty isolated from what's the day-to-day -day in that country or that region. Um, let's see, what else was it? So it's also the means of conveying best practices, right? That science to science thing. And uh, there, were, there was a study done, I won't remember by whom, that, that drew out the point when they surveyed people who were on the receiving end of capacity building efforts, they're much more impactful if it's their counterparts in that country as opposed to some outside entity trying to, trying to impress upon them this is important. So if it's biosecurity and safety or, or whatever, chemical and uh, you know, security issues, have those counterparts as, as the voice for impressing upon their counterparts or their peers. This is how we do it and this is why we do it this way. And for me, and this is not emphasized enough in a lot of um, you know, discussions related to this, that really, to me, is the, the linchpin for sustainability. If you get critical mass in terms of the people who are involved in those capacity building efforts. Not a footnote. Why is this so important? But we have a vacuum in terms of any international understandings in all of these domains of, of advances in technology. So if we're not out there engaging and talking it through with our counterparts, we're nowhere in terms of the uses and applications. And then the threat goes up in terms of how those, how those technologies are being applied. I already touched on this, but I think it becomes an amorphous blob of threat reduction-like activities, and so many different actors are engaged all of this is feasible in terms of getting your arms around it, but it requires U.S. government cooperation as well, you know, agency to agency. As I touched on, you know, the interagency process is intermittently broken. The panelists were um, did a good job of acting as if all is good, but it but it's not good and it needs a fresh look in terms of, of what that looks like. That's just me speaking. The National Academies did not say that. Um, the enforcement of norms and leveraging the international organizations, but I also already touched on this. You know, that, that backing, that provision of a forum just for the conversation to take place. And we're gonna need more of that, especially in this environment. Um, Industry, industry, industry needs to be part of, part of the solution set, right? What agency, US government agency, has a comparative advantage in working with industry to promote best practices, et cetera, et cetera? We're not doing a very good job of that piece as well. Industry has played another role of unsung heroes, but from a contracting standpoint, 
not from a promotion of best practices standpoint. So you have to sort of flip the paradigm there and try to figure out how do you create the incentive structures for industry to be out there on the front lines. Next slide. So my last slide, and I know you guys are tired, or maybe that's just me. This all brings us to the metrics questions. I think, it, as I touched on, I think it's doable, but it's really complicated. Um, we're not really doing threat reduction, right? It's one or two steps away from a threat. If it's bad stuff, bad actors with an intent, traditional sort of definition of threat, we're two or three steps away from that, but we need to be, right? Because of how quickly that emergent thing becomes imminent, right? But it's kind of the wrong label if you're looking at it from a metrics development standpoint. Engagement, and there's a lot of discussion around this with the last National Academies report, it's too warm and fuzzy, right? And I'm speaking specifically from my Capitol Hill you know, experience, engagement. Well, is it the number of countries? And to what effect? And a good metric is never just listing activities. Wow, you're really busy, but who the hell cares? Right? You spent the money, but did anything get get did you move from, from point A to point B in terms of impact? Very, very difficult. I do believe that there needs to be a different labeling a different branding for what we call these things, at least from a perspective of measuring success. And this is why I, I already hammered on the point that, that I would read Laurel Holgate's keynote um, at the end of, of the proceedings, which are all online under a link, because she's right. It's not threat. We're not dealing directly with threats in most cases, right? And we're not reducing them, we're managing them. So her label was cooperative risk management. And perhaps with that framework, you can then provide metrics against, here's how we're managing this risk. And I think in particular, that framework could encompass the technological advances in terms of what are the conduits that we're creating for counterparts in X, Y, or Z countries to discuss the cyber, to discuss you know, additive manufacturing, to discuss UAVs and their application? I don't think I emphasize it enough. All of those technologies can have huge benefits. But right now, we are in a complete vacuum in terms of in any international understandings as to what's the appropriate application for them and the fluidity with which they impact the traditional WMD threat um, readings. Um, I think I'll stop there. And hopefully that just opens the aperture for a lot of discussion. Um, and I'll turn it over to Dave. Just as an observation while waiting, that the problem with the metrics, of course, is what the main one of the main achievements of the CTR is 9/11s averted. 
So you know you don't have a disaster. You're not you proven negative. Yeah, right. That's a counterfactual. Yeah. Oh, and then after David's done, then we'll turn over and allow uh, Roderick. Testing, testing. That's better. Thank you. As I said, Libby and I didn't really coordinate, but I think this is going to work. Uh, about all I know about nuke is a gamma source to irradiate microbes to inactivate them. So uh, I'm going to talk more about bio. And I assumed that there would be a lot more people here that are comfortable with the nuclear issues than the bio issues. What I'm going to try to do is, is sort of put this current report in context with a little bit of history that some of you will know, some of you won't know. And it's, mostly, it's essentially all, all bio, because that's my perspective. Uh, we, of course, had an offensive biological warfare program that President Nixon stopped in 1969. Then during the 70s, we had the BWC signed and ratified. Uh, we had the anthrax leak at Sverdlovsk, which brought uh, biopreparat and some of the, uh, the Soviet weapons programs into the, the thinking of, of more people. There were approximately 90-some deaths. Uh, the Soviets, we learned, actually increased the offensive biological warfare program during the 80s. And then in 1990, there was a memo of concern, a US-UK memo of concern about the Soviet BW program. And this, was this, this led then to the baker Shevardnadze meetings. And this was sort of the start of what we would eventually see as, as cooperative threat reduction. The first US-UK team visited Soviet uh, biological weapons facilities in July of 1991. And then in November of that year of 91, we had the non-Lugert legislation. December, the first Soviet team visited the US. They visited Dugway, uh, Dugway Proving Ground, uh, USAMRID, my laboratory, and Pine Bluff Arsenal. Certainly Pine Bluff and USAMRID had been involved, uh, Pine Bluff and Dugway had, had been involved in our old program. USAMRID was actually stood up after we uh, stopped our weapons program. That was December of 91. So our, Russia, our, our Soviet colleagues went home to a collapsed USSR. They went back to Russia. Then in September of 92, we had the trilateral agreement, which was a US, UK, Russia, initially intended to be a, an asymmetric agreement where the US and the UK would help Russia deal with their offensive program. But as it was written and signed, eventually on the last day of those negotiations, it became a set symmetrical agreement. So we went there to visit uh, the Soviet facility, the Russian facilities, and uh, our Russian colleagues would later come here to visit some of our facilities. September 92 was the same time that Ken Alabek uh, defected to the, uh, to the US. Uh, October of 93 was, of course, the Yeltsin constitutional crisis. That was my first day in, in Russia. And uh, it was the first set of trilateral agreement uh, visits. That was, uh, head of Dell was Ambassador Ed Lacey. We visited Pokrov and Birsk. And then January of 94, uh, Don Maley, hand over the heart, 
would be head of Dell as we visited Amitninsk and, and Obolinsk. And throughout all these periods, we began learning to know our colleagues and learning to understand each other, uh, I think, in many ways that, we did, that I didn't expect uh, as we were working together, both around conference tables and walking through uh, laboratories and facilities. Then interspersed with all that was UNSCOM, the UN Special Commission on Iraq. That was 93, 94, 95, and I, was, I led three of those missions, the third and the fifth and the 20th mission, and saw a completely or quite different perspective in our form of engagement. In Iraq, we had a big stick, uh, Security Council Resolution 687, and we could go anywhere, do anything, take anything, uh, do anything we wanted to do. In Russia, it was a negotiated relationship under the trilateral agreement. And I, I saw a marked difference there. Then in June of 94, the ISTC, the International Science and Technology Center, was set up in Moscow. And it was more complicated than this, but one thing it had allowed us to do was to get money to Russian scientists without those funds being taxed by the government. And, and I think it was a very effective uh, program. And six or eight other countries were involved with us in the ISTC. Um, 94, see, Nunn-Luger legislation was 1991. We didn't start doing anything with bio under Nunn-Luger until 1994. And that was some early DITRA work uh, and collaboration set up between Vector in Koltsovo out in Novosibirsk and uh, the Obolinsk uh, bacterial biopreparat facility. Uh, by 2004 then, uh, H.R. 1588 authorized spending of DOD CTR funds outside of Russia. And in, by 2006, the Department of State launched what they then called a Global Biosecurity Program. And that was primarily in the MENA region and in South and Southeast Asia and in the Pacific. So uh, Department of State was then involved after 2006. Uh, I was serving, I was chairing a committee that was, uh, was run by Glenn Schweitzer at the National Academies at that time, and we were monitoring the research work that was going on. This went on for eight or 10 years that we were on this committee, monitoring the research work that was going on between US and Russian former weapons scientists. And we published, I think, three reports over that period of time, and there was one in 2007 in which we said, We've achieved significant transparency. We've refocused basic and, and particularly applied BW research toward peaceful purposes. We believe there, we very likely resulted in a, a reduction in brain drain. And I believe, if any, it was very small. Uh, but our fourth bullet and the one we underscored was we had developed many personal relationships with the individuals with whom we were working. And I experienced that uh, along with, with the other folks that were working in this way and working closely with our, our colleagues in Russia. But by about 2008, we'd sort of run out of big BW programs to deal with. Uh, the, the small uh, Iraqi program was gone, and the, uh, 
we, we were at a very positive state with regard to the, the, the Soviet or Russian program. So the, while the original non-Luger legislation, I think, had been visionary and almost revolutionary, it had become a little bureaucratic by that point. It was run by uh, big integrating contractors, and in some cases, it was less personal than it had been uh, earlier, I believe. So as Libby, as Libby mentioned, uh, Ron Lehman and I co-chaired this, this report in 2009 to try to deal with that point and what, had, what it had come to at that point in our history. Uh, by the way, Ron and I co-chaired it, but we had a, a fantastic committee, one of the best committees I've ever served with uh, uh, as, we, as we prepared that report. We said there are new threats, asymmetries in warfare. The threat was now global and diffuse as opposed to uh, big state focal. Uh, there were, we were now dealing with network ter terrorism. We were in about the second decade of a biotech revolution, uh, which has become more important as we engage uh, in recent years. And there is now global, we said, there is now global access to information and, uh, and technology. Uh, it's available essentially anywhere. So in this report, uh, we proposed, one, this rebranding of CTR, Cooperative Threat Reduction. You're the threat if we use CTR. Uh, we suggested in that one to call it Global Security Engagement. I think CTR is a really sticky brand, and it's, it's stuck around for a long time, and it's, it's hard to change. We suggested lighter and more agile approaches. Uh, reduce or eliminate to work toward working together collaboratively to reduce or eliminate both natural and uh, intentional misuse of biology. Uh, establish true partnerships, partnerships in planning, in execution, and resources, where resources might not be available, at least in-kind resources, and we've, we've gradually moved in that direction. Uh, we suggested we needed to work better across the interagency, and we needed White House leadership, the only place that the interagency community comes together. And then, as, as Libby said, we asked for metrics. In this case, metrics that reflect the security value of personal relationships. Um, I think right on target, really hard to do, and I'm not sure we've succeeded yet in, in our programs. Shortly after that release of that report in 2009, President Obama released PPD2, which was uh, called the National Strategy for Countering uh, Biological Threats. And it was very much in line <clears throat> with what we had recommended in the report. Called for international engagement, called for looking at natural and intentional threats at, together, uh, as we move forward, and also called for, for prevention. We'd do, been doing prevention for nuclear threats for many years because it's too hard to do. It's clearly understood it's pretty hard to do response and recover, recovery to nuclear threats. But our focus in bio had been on the back end to response and recovery. This uh, PPD asked us to think about deterrence and dissuasion, prevention, 
of uh, BW kinds of advance, uh, events as well. <clears throat> so at that point, CTR was primarily DITRA, uh, the CBEP or whatever it was called at that time, and state uh, BEP, the Bioengagement Program. Then in 2013, uh, Putin annexed Crimea, and we stopped working with our Russian colleagues. It doesn't mean we don't still have friends that we worked with in the past, and we, uh, we still exchange Christmas cards, but we stopped traveling to Russia for, uh, for this work that we'd done in the past. Then in 2015, ISTC, the International Science and Technology Center, moved from Moscow to Astana, uh, Kazakhstan. Libby has mentioned metrics. Uh, I've had, long had an interest in metrics. Uh, and as Libby demonstrated, the Nunn-Luger scorecard worked really well for some things. It really didn't work very well for bio. Later, in later years, they added uh, the bottom of the list, I think, uh, biological laboratories engaged, the number engaged. And what does that mean? Uh, I have long argued that we need uh, some simple metrics that uh, uh, and I'll just mention them to you. I did at the, at the conference that we had. Are we using the taxpay our taxpayers' dollars efficiently? I think that's measurable. Is the partner's health and security improved? I think that's measurable. Have our partners bought into the relationship? I think if we're working closely enough, that's measurable. Are we developing sustainable capabilities? Measurable. Have we built long-term relationships of trust, person to person? A little squishy, but you know it when you see it. Uh, so I don't think we should give up on metrics just because they're really hard for biology. So why not just lock up the labs and destroy the dangerous bugs? It's not that simple. One of my heroes, uh, the only Nobel laureate who ever cared about biological defense was Joshua Lederberg. Um, in 1998, he was talking to Richard uh, Preston about a paper that Richard was writing, a piece Richard was writing for The New Yorker. And Josh said, there is no technical solution to this problem of biological warfare. He wasn't talking about terrorism in 98. Uh, it will require an ethical or a moral solution, if there is a solution. And then he paused and looked at Richard and said, but would an ethical or moral solution appeal to a sociopath? And that's sort of the dilemma we've been struggling with in biology. 1998, I was at the top of my technical career. I was commanding USAMRID. We were making drugs, vaccines, and diagnostics. We were going to save the world with technical solutions. And I thought, Josh, don't say that. But the longer I lived, the more I believed Josh knew what he was talking about. Uh, so in this brief report, and I'm not going to go through it uh, in the detail that, uh, that Libby did, uh, I'll just mention we restate and we underscore uh, a lot of the language that was in this report, uh, the value of cooperation across sectors. We suggest we could do better at that the importance of helping our leadership and our public understand the value of CTR. Libby touched on that. It's not always easy, but it's, it's really important. We don't always have champions 
in Congress that support uh, what we believe is so important. We talked in there about re-engaging Russia the scientists, with the scientists that we still uh, exchange Christmas cards with. Uh, we talked about scientific partnerships, transparency, trust, and how that, starting at the grassroots level among technical folks, can eventually make its way up to governments as well. And we talked about the fact that labels are important, and she mentioned CRM. So I'm convinced, after being involved and watching from the stands for the last 25 years, that it's really a lot about people. It's more about people than about technologies. Uh, Josh was right. Uh, science and health can be the glue that bring these relationships together. And when you have these relationships of trust, there's more understanding and there's more transparency. Sure, we can increase laboratory safety. That's a great thing, and we're doing it now more than ever. We can enhance laboratory security. We can lock up the bugs. That's a good thing. But I believe the process of doing that, working together with our colleagues wherever we work, is probably more important than the product at the end of those, uh, end of those relationships. When people ask me, why is this increasing US national security? It's, it's, it's sometimes a hard question to answer. I say directly because if we're working together out there, we have a better opportunity for early warning and situational awareness of what's going on around us in the natural world or potentially in the intentional, with regard to intentional use of biological materials. I also believe indirectly that regular communication around mutually relevant topics can lead to relationships that we've both mentioned already that lead to enhanced transparency. I think a good, uh, an example of a good friend is one who'll tell you bad news as well as good news. It's really important to hear the bad news. That leads to understanding and even trust. Trust is contagious. Uh, with trust, transparency increases further. And a culture of trust in any community or region is an uncomfortable area of operations for uh, a, a radical group or, or terrorist efforts or whatever. So I think uh, those relationships that we've built over the years and continue to build through the CTR programs are critical. And I'll just close with this. I wrote an op-ed a while back uh, and the, the final, on, on this topic in general, and the final uh, sentence said, while our view of intentional threats and even natural risks will never be perfect, it could be better. We must be alert to the ever-changing biological world around us. Friends can help us do that when and where we have them. I think uh, you all know how really complex these challenges are, and they're quite different than the challenges we face with, uh, from uh, nuclear, nuclear weapons, or even chemical weapons, I believe. There are no perfect solutions. There's no, no one-shot stop to fix this problem. But CTR or CRM, whatever we, we call it, 
has and will continue to be a really important slice of the solution to dealing with these uh, not very well understood and sometimes nebulous threats. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much as well. Uh, what we'll uh, do is now we'll proceed for about uh, 40 uh, minutes of question answer discussion. If you want to make a comment, that's fine. You want to ask a question, it's fine. Just raise your hand, they'll bring the microphone. You can or cannot identify yourself as you wish. And uh, just remind people on live stream, if you want to do the same, just send me uh, your question or comment to whites at hudson.org. Uh, all right, so where, where are the mics? Okay, there we go. So, so if you can, yeah, all right. See if they're going to start on the back and then move forward. So do you want to just bring it to the on the back then? Hi, uh, Rick Cupid, Stimson Center. Uh, I have a plug, a comment, and a question. Uh, the plug, very quickly, uh, for many of you, you know I've been involved with the 1540 Committee since its inception, more or less. Uh, and uh, one of the challenges we have is very much in the assistance area. And Stimson has recently put together an online database of about 1,200 CBRN nonproliferation assistance programs. And we've just got further funding to continue to expand. But it's, it's a big question, what's out there? Uh, so and I think you asked that. Um, my comment is on the uh, the proceedings were very interesting. Thank you for, for releasing those. Uh, I heard you say that you uh, was suggested that more reliance um, in the assistance area, we'd rely more maybe on the international organizations. Um, my experience is that they're struggling with anything to do with uh, assistance in risk management or reducing vulnerabilities. I, I think if you look at the BWC Implementation Support Unit, the OPCW, uh, certainly the 1540 Committee, to some extent IEA, this is a real challenge for them. So I don't know, you know, if you lean more on them or give them more, I'm not sure they're up to it. Is uh, so we, I think you might you might want to address that. And then the question was, as these tectonic plates have shifted, as Libby said, to be more less about getting rid of weapons uh, and more about doing closing vulnerabilities, let's say, if, if not managing risks. Um, we're engaging a lot of new partners. Uh, but one of the things that we found is a lot of these new partners have no idea really how to engage in this kind of assistance partnership. And to what extent was the were the lessons learned from 1991? Um, about how to construct that, because both sides had never worked together before. Were they, did you see those playing out in these, as we move to create these other relationships with other state parties? Did, was that part of the, um, did you see that during the two days? And, and what value do you think those lessons might have? Thank you. Okay, either of you two want to comment on the, uh... I'll make two, two comments to parts of those questions. Uh, the WHO is leaning forward on risk now. Uh, Kaz Kajima, who is a, a Japanese MD-PhD who's responsible at the WHO for this, has, 
has really taken on the risk issue, primarily though for laboratories, for uh, safety in laboratories. Uh, but as you know, WHO is always strapped for funds, but they can, uh, they can bring together uh, the, the right people globally, and they're trying to do that. Uh, the other thing I'll mention about 1991, it was all, for me, it was all about science that broke the ice between, you know, we were sitting, I have one example, I was sitting in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs with the sun in my eyes, uh, and our, our Russian colleagues were on the other side, and Don Maley turned to me, I was sort of a technical guy that was just there to kind of watch technical issues, I wasn't a diplomat or anything, but Don Maley turned to me, I was sitting on his left and said, Colonel Franz, you and the Russian colonel over there, who's an MD, PhD, on the other side, go in the other room, work on this part of the bracketed text. It's only science. That's a Don Maley quote that I love. <laughs> it's only science. And uh, we went in the other room, and in 20 minutes, our brackets were gone because it was only science. We spoke the same, you know, the common language of science. and. It had been a little hostile all the way. We weren't like talking together at breaks, but at the next break, this colonel came over to me and said, do you have a family? And that was a powerful, powerful lesson for me that I never forgot. 1994, I think, in, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I continued to use that, you know, that science uh, wedge and, and haven't stopped yet. So uh, science can be really powerful if you find people spe who speak the common language. Yeah, just um, Rick, I hear you loud and clear in terms of leveraging already overwhelmed institutions. I think the one that I would point to and the one that I'm, I don't know if I'm most concerned about it, but, but that whole nuclear security summit process got all these commitments related to the nuclear security fund and once the, the spotlight shifts, where does that go? Because it's not an obligatory sort of contribution format. It's a, it's a whole different, it's all voluntary. Um, so that's the one I've paid probably the most attention to in terms of the IAEA mandate, authorities, responsibilities, and then this other section in terms of the nuclear security efforts that the IAEA is, is embedded in. I think I was thinking of it more as, as, as less as them doing the work and more as providing the forum and, and the backing. Um, certainly as we enter an environment where um, cooperation, it was Vikram Singh who said, you know, one of the ironies of today is that cooperation is more necessary than ever, and I'm paraphrasing again here, and the opportunities seem to be dwindling, right? Um, that the idea behind what many of the panelists were saying was that, that those are the venues because they do have that, that moniker of international uh, backing in terms of what that looks like. It's not the US impressing upon everybody what they need to do, but rather an international institution that, that provides that, that forum or that venue. Um, anecdotally, um, and, and you probably know this, but, but I used to be at Stemson and I was doing a lot of 1540 work. <laughs> and I'll never forget, this is just an anecdote. But we had on our list to engage the 1540 person in the missions up in New York, right? And so two of the, the countries we had chosen to engage were Tanzania for Eastern Africa sort of reasons, and then Trinidad and Tobago, I think, was the other one. 
And so we go to the mission for Tanzania, and this, we meet this gentleman, and we swap cards and have a nice conversation with him. And he impresses upon us, my government's overwhelmed. I'm the guy for everything WMD or security related in the mission. And we have reporting requirements up the yin-yang, and what do you want from me? In a very nice way. He's a di diplomat, after all. And then a day or two later, we go to meet the gentleman who's responsible for 1540 reporting and whatnot from Trinidad and Tobago, and it's the same guy. <laughs> and I was like, wow. And actually, <laughs> part of the lesson learned for me was that the UN missions operate like a lot of Capitol Hill offices, right, in terms of what that por portfolio looks like and how thinly spread the guy or the gal is that's responsible for that portfolio. So keeping those, those operational issues in mind as we march forward with any sort of agenda is really, really critical. Um, hope that's helpful. Yeah, thank you for sharing the information about the database. I didn't, I didn't know about that. It was very useful. Um, I think, yeah, there's some questions here. We'll go on this side of the room, and then we'll switch over to the other side. Uh, um, my name is Don Kirk. I spent a lot of time in Korea. I, you know, this whole conversation seems so abstract and theoretical. I wonder whether you could uh, bring it around to the subject of North Korea, about which, which I don't think has gotten mentioned at all, and uh, how some of these... Uh, experiences and uh, uh, you know on this background might serve uh, to uh, help resolve problems with North Korea um, biochem as well as nuclear thank you great question just think of it as if you know there's a second summit Jim Sun comes here and he asks for me with NGO people like ourselves what will we tell him to do so I don't know who wants to go in or... oh, I can I can jump in there um, um, why not? I'm already underwater. Um, um, there's a lot of thinking going on and a lot of planning about what would happen in the case of. It's sort of that what-if scenario. Um, it's not as forward-leaning as I might like just because of, of the constraints within which some of these programs operate. Um, this is to my knowledge in terms of, of, of what's going on. How these things would apply, I think, relates to, to the first question, which is, where's that archive of lessons learned? And how well are we doing about sharing the lessons learned from the US-Russia FSU experience and its broader application to a lot of other scenarios? So I could offer as some consolation there's a lot of thinking going on about how that would apply to a North Korea scenario. But there are a lot of boxes that would have to be checked, including the cooperative element of that for these programs to come into play. And that is the one scenario that seems more feasible, if you will, than others for utilizing legacy tools of CTR, cooperative threat reduction, in terms of elimination, consolidation, et cetera, et cetera, and dealing with, with the, the scientific knowledge in North Korea. I don't know if that covers the entirety of the waterfront in terms of your question. I would assume, and perhaps this is wrong, that, that whatever iteration of lessons learned has been shared, at least with our South Korean, Japanese, and Japanese counterparts. I would hope that is the case. But it's not, it wouldn't be that difficult to do, but at least to my knowledge, there is not one repository 
and this is, this is an information deficit, I think, in terms of the community of practice related to what is that one lessons learned history of, of CTR in its original sort of iteration. And I think that would be really important. I would just add that I mentioned the difference in operating uh, under UNSCOM, uh, Security Council Resolution 687, when I was doing that, and uh, the trilateral agreement. It will depend a lot on the political situation, I think. Uh, and also, I would think the biological piece would be easier than the chem piece, which would probably be easier than the nuclear piece. From my, I only know the biological piece and a little bit about chem, but uh, that would be my sense. I don't know if anyone else in the audience has a, just a two finger on this one. Has anyone thought about this? How to, how my career, so, well, you don't have to say it now. Think about that. If you have an idea, just raise your hand and look. Cause I'm, we're, we're struggling for, on this issue as well. Um, I think, with, I, I, yeah, there, I think there is one. Uh, and you, and you, okay, go ahead. If you want to talk about this particular yeah. response, yeah. Hi, I'm Bill Veal. I'm a retired Foreign Service officer. I served uh, on detail to the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, 95 to 98, uh, working with Laura Holgate mm -hmm. and uh, Ash Carter. Um, I, I, I'm just trying to focus, I share a little bit of the concern that the gentleman Kirk uh, just uh, raised. Uh, this is, seems very fuzzy. And I guess this is what happens to something that's been around as long as CTR has. But it seems to me that the thing that objectifies CTR was an arms control agreement with the Soviet Union that then provided the metrics for what you were doing. You were enhancing the, the capacity of the successor states to reduce and meet the obligations of the agreements that they had, uh, had been become successor states to, to observe. So uh, addressing that capacity was a large part of what the early CTR program was doing, and it was trying to know, get, help them get rid of those weapons. And in the Korean case, it seems to me that you need uh, a custodian uh, for warheads, or you need a, uh, a MIAC or something like that that can disp uh, disassemble the things. I mean, there's a lot of legacy concepts there, I think, that could be brought to bear in this, and the willingness of uh, an existing nuclear power to become, uh, if you will, a custodian of warheads or oversee the dismantling process. These are the types of things that I think people need to be thinking about and talking about. So that's my comment. Thank you. Very helpful. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Hansel, uh, up front. There, uh, Deborah Decker, Stimson Center. There is a, a verification group working on some of those issues now um, in the NGO community in particular. but. Um, one of the things that um, I'm curious if has anything to move forward on it, when after the, um, the summit between Trump and Putin, Putin had, had suggested that we have positive points of contact established and that there be an expert council developed. I mean, I, it couldn't be like the Obama's bilateral commission where it goes across all the agencies. And s but I, I had done a piece for Defense One on how we could do this in the nuclear area across multiple issues where we have common elements of we both co-chair the global initiative to combat nuclear terrorism, for example. I mean, that's just one thing, but there are so many other areas where we could cooperate. Do you know if anything has moved forward on that? I mean, there was 
it, what the idea was to have political scientists, prominent diplomats, military officials, so it's not just an administration that changes every four years and who knows what's going on, but you have that legacy of people, scientists, diplomats, military, think tankers, who will be in talking to each other. Any movement? Anybody know? So my, uh, the, the way it sounded to me was like the Gore Chernomirdin Commission of the of the 90s, um, sort of. And to my knowledge, I don't know of anything moving on that. But I, I, but I I'm not omniscient. I, I passed the article. The article got passed to Pompeo and to um, I, I sent it up to Harvard for Russian matters because I figured at least maybe they have had funding they could do it themselves. Uh, we have somebody from the Russian embassy here, but I won't. I won't call her out, but if she wants to contribute or at least read the article and tell us what, she, what you, tell her you what she thinks, that would be helpful. Was this track one? You're... No, he suggested, uh, Philip suggested opening us. Track one and a half. Track one and a half, yeah. Okay, so are we, are we done now for the moment in this side of the room? Just want, I want to miss anybody because we have time to go through these. Okay, why don't we shift to the other side? And again, people online, you want to comment or contribute, uh, just uh, email me. Thank you very much. I'm Jennifer Mackby, Federation of American Scientists. So the state's parties to the Biological Weapons Convention just met in Geneva recently, uh, just last month. Uh, and it was really for groups of experts, and they met under five different baskets of items. But one of them was science and technology, and they were discussing CRISPR-Cas9 and other recent uh, developments. And I was curious about your uh, question of trust. How do you get that element into a multilateral setting? Because they have yearly submissions of confidence-building measures that they submit, only half the countries participate. It's not a, it's a voluntary effort. It's not uh, required. And so I just w was curious about how you use trust in the biotech field. It's so complex and so uh, scary, frankly. Thank you. That's essentially what we're doing at CSAC. Uh, we work primarily in China, India, and Pakistan. And in the past, of course, a lot in Russia and hope to do that in the future. But we get together and talk, uh, talk to the leadership, uh, and these are track one and a half, typically, and learn to know one another and talk about these issues. CRISPR-Cas is an interesting one because it's a shiny object that everyone has picked up on. There are many other kinds of things to worry about, and there will be many more in the future. Uh, but it's like, uh, like the gun lobby says, Guns don't kill people, people kill people. Uh, CRISPR-Cas doesn't kill people. <laughs> you know, people kill people or make mistakes or whatever. Uh, but I think it's an opportunity for education. With regard to trust, it's just continuing to work together. We have an effort with China. China has just built three new biosafety level four labs. This is like I had it at Fort Detrick. And, uh, uh, Jim LaDuke, who runs the uh, Galveston National Lab, and I have been working in China for the last, uh, we started in 97, uh, uh, 07, uh, I guess, and meeting with the leadership now of these new BL4 labs and are working together quite openly. 
they visit Jim's lab, we visit their labs, we have meetings, we have primarily around virology, but also around the new technologies and so on. And uh, I don't know how to do it other than getting together. It's about people. It's not about technologies. Uh, yeah, uh, I know WHO has an effort. I mentioned Cause, uh, who is is taking on the international health regulations, and then we have uh, GHSA, the Global Health Security Agenda. And I should have mentioned that earlier. That has sort of that's the the next generation almost of CTR-like activities that our government is is strongly supporting. Um, that came out in 2014 uh, under the Obama administration. And uh, it was poorly funded initially, but then some Ebola funds that were left over were put in. And now there are about 60 countries that are involved and talking about the kinds of things. It's not all about new technologies. It's about lab safety and lab security and so on. But uh, they're talking. And uh, it's, uh, there's no perfect solution to, to any of these things, but we're nibbling away at it, I think. Okay. Um, go ahead. Uh, that's right, yeah. recording. I'm Paul Walker with Green Cross International. You probably know a good many people in the audience here. Um, long been involved in CTR and was part of the original drafting and fighting for it in Congress when as you probably remember, David, that we we couldn't get full approval for it in the first few years, and people thought it was a free giveaway to foreign governments. And so in the early to mid-'90s, Rich, you, you certainly know about this. The early to mid-'90s, this was a big fight. <clears throat> so I was very involved in that. I've been very involved in uh, cooperative threat reduction when it was CTR as opposed to DITRA, um, and worked for years um, in Russia, United States and elsewhere. Um, you know, one of the major issues we fought over the years, and this was um, very evident in the CTR 2.0 report, which I'd urge people to, talking about lessons, Libby, urge people to read, um, was the lack of public awareness, the lack of uh, public involvement, uh, the lack of transparency. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, CTR folk, including the integrating contractors, were we're very used to highly classified programs and top secret uh, involvement. And when we went to Russia, for example, and said one of the first things you should do is you should establish citizen advisory commissions. And they said oh, what we call CACs. And they said, oh, my God, we can't do that. This is all top secret, and no one should know about this. And without going on at length, uh, that continues to be a big issue. And I know, we, Libby, you and I have had some conversations about this. Um, and I know it's a fine line between security issues and public transparency and involvement. But even under the uh, Chem Weapons Destruction Program, uh, we, we were involved with, uh, with Syria a few years ago. Uh, we had a very hard time with Department of Defense and State Department on talking publicly about what was going on uh, and engaging, particularly Mediterranean countries, you know, Greece, Greece and Turkey and Italy and Spain and others who were out protesting and feeling that this would you know, deeply endanger the tourist industry and, and the fishing industry in the Mediterranean. So public engagement to me remains uh, an ongoing challenge, and that relates to CTR and DITRA itself. If you go up on the website, uh, there's almost nothing to learn on the website uh, for those operations. And so, um, 
you know, we may wind up having just to legislate something if this continues to be such a such a serious problem. Uh, related to that, I think is is in all these weapons of mass destruction issues we're talking about, we have major multilateral arms control and disarmament and abolition treaties. Uh, the Biological Weapons Convention that that Jennifer mentioned, the Chemical Weapons Convention, we're very involved with as well, um, and the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty and the IEA uh, inspection regimes. And yet, I've heard neither of you mention uh, the BWC, the CWC, the NPT, or how how we use those multilateral agreements to, in fact, promote uh, cooperative or international or global risk management. So, if you could comment on both the public outreach and involvement and transparency issue, as well as the multilateral forum and strengthening multilateral agreements issues, that would be helpful, I think, to us all. Thank you. Start. Uh, none of what we uh, do at the academies, uh, everything we do at the academies is, is available to the public, and so that's not even an issue for, for the work that we do. Uh, with regard to the, the treaties, I, I only have so much time, and I made a decision years ago while I support, it's an international law, BWC, I was never involved in the CWC. BWC, I used to be involved in the meetings in Geneva and so on. It's an important international norm. It's an international law. Uh, I fully support it, but I haven't spent a lot of time uh, going back and forth to Geneva. There's a, there's a whole s another set of people that do that regularly, as you know. Many of them are my friends, and I stay in touch, and I know what's going on roughly. And I would just add that over the last, to link CRISPR-Cas to, to your question, uh, as some of these shiny technical objects have come into the awareness of, of leadership, they've got, the BWC has gotten more and more involved in these kinds of things. There are subgroup meetings and NGOs are presenting and universities folks are presenting on the technical issues at the BWC. And I think that's been a good thing in that it's more than just, uh, you know, Article One of types and quantities. It's, uh, it's now looking broadly at the whole biological enterprise. And I think that's a positive thing that has changed. But I have to admit, I don't spend very much time uh, in Geneva or thinking about the BWC. Wow. Um, so I have a couple of different thoughts on the on your question about public awareness. Um, last week, about this time, I went to the NTI's release of its most recent iteration of the Nuclear Security Index, and I do a, a fair bit of work, um, or off and on, I've been involved in a fair bit of work down at, at DITRA. And it seems to me, in terms of that public awareness question. Not only are we up against this challenge in terms of metrics to quantify or qualify what we're doing in, the, in these engagements, we're awash in data. So I'm gonna take the nuclear security index as an example. Five categories, weighted values for different metrics related to racking and stacking 179 countries. And if you're a wonky nuke person like myself, you can dive into that material on their website, and it's, it's phenomenal, awesome. And I think there is a value in and of it itself 
for what NTI has done on that. And by the way, Beth Cameron is leading the charge to have a global health security index that, that is analogous to that nuclear security index. Okay, awash in data. It's out there, right? Translating that to public awareness is the trick, right? Because really, you sit there and you listen to, to um, 179 countries and who was ranked where and how were the values weighted, and you get lost. The story gets lost in terms of real pub public awareness of, of, you know, well, what's the takeaway? I think that's why I was so impressed by, by Mallory Stewart's uh, expose as a panelist. She just told a really engaging story. So I think there's a need a, a dire need for somebody to provide that interface and translate the data into the story for public consumption. Because the people in this room were wonky enough, we'll dive into the data and, oh, isn't that juicy and lovely, right? But, but for the general public, and I was involved in several iteration of, of attempts, both NTI funded as well as Stanley Foundation funded, back in my Stimson days, to go out and engage the public about nuclear security stuff. The public is sleepwalking into the third nuclear age. They are not involved in this discussion at all. And they're not interested. It's almost like, you know, 179 countries, five categories, weighted values, data, tsunami, versus 180 characters, tweet. Who's providing the translation? Nobody that I can tell. So it's a, I'm hugely frustrated by it and would love to be involved in helping translate and convey those stories. I don't know, it's a question. With respect to treaties, my bad, I thought about putting it up as part of that legacy, sort of the backstop arms control, traditional arms control, this is why we were there, this is why Ukraine, <laughs> Belarus, and Kazakhstan sent all the weapons back, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, there are abolition treaties, and I'll just touch on the nuke and chem. It gets very confusing very fast in terms of the Chemical Weapons Convention, yes, it's very clear. Abolish, according to the annexes in that treaty, that doesn't apply to the new technologies in chem and the biochem derivatives thereof, right? So that just makes my head hurt and I'm not enough of a hard scientist to, to wrap my head around it. Never mind the fact that people are getting killed by chlorine. So reinforcing the norm is really, really important. But this is not traditional chemical weapons warfare. This is just using industrial chemicals. So that's another piece of that puzzle. And as you know probably better than I, and, and Laura went into this in her keynote, the nuclear weapons ban is scaring people with respect to support for the NPT. And there's a fracturing within the global community in terms of NPT support versus the ban because of their frustrations on disarmament. And where that's all headed, nobody knows. But I would, I'll go back to Rick's question beginning. Anything we can do, whether it's funding or, or creating the opportunity, utilizing or leveraging 
those institutions as the venue we should be doing. Should be. I would interject that Hudson's trying to do its part to reach out to audiences. And to that end, I have a question, uh, a question that came in over the internet. Uh, both speakers cited the need for increased domestic cooperation across sectors. This is obviously real. Are there specific recommendations or starting points for improving coordination? So basically, the point you, uh, you left is what, again, do you have any? Uh, so I go back to my comment about data. <clears throat> OK, here's the ideal. The interagency collaboration has always been a cluster you know what, in some form or fashion. And every administration, it goes through another iteration of who's on what what base, right? Because there are different you know, enablers or, or turf protectors that come into play. If it were feasible to provide one, one platform for collecting the data on an interagency basis, where are you going? What's the trip? What's the activity? It's a reporting requirement. And it's all fed into one platform. This is all feasible. Little tiny gadget, GPS, they know where they're going, what they're doing in country, what the objective might be, what in-state are they seeking between DOD, state, energy, HHS, CDC, USAID. It's all feasible. The data is out there. Could you stream that and, and create a, a platform for that community of practice that then filters up into the metrics? This is the value add for all of these trips and all of these projects. And then translate it into the story for public awareness of the value of their taxpayer dollars. It's doable, just not likely because of tribalism within the bureaucracy. My take. I would just add, there have been attempts to pull all that together. I know while I was working for Andy Weber for a while at uh, at ATNL, just as an IPA, Intergovernmental Personnel Act. You want to translate the acronyms, ATL, IPA? Uh, it, it no Acquisition Technology. It, it, it's gone. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, but, uh, at the time I was working with Andy, there were efforts within the government to pull all that together. And it's really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, I know, I don't think we succeeded at the time, and it's constantly changing. Well, let me also mention that, that part of the difficulty is that classified versus unclassified and dealing with classification levels related to that. So it's not, again, very, very difficult. But I do think I, it would be feasible. All right, we have time for a final question or comment, if anybody would like to make a last contribution. Seeing none, uh, join me in thanking the panelists. Oh, wait, can I, can I just, this is a very personal thing. So on 9-11, I was working on Capitol Hill for Pete Domenici. And I could tell my own anecdote about that. It was really a somber, awful thing. 9-11, <clears throat> my baby girl was born. So if everybody would look at that camera and say, happy birthday, Maya. <laughs> <laughs>
I would be so delighted. So on three. One, two, three. Happy birthday, Maya. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And with that, uh, I can't always promise it will be that, that enjoyable. But I'll see you guys uh, hopefully next time. Uh, I'll, I'll be sure to email you when we have our next public event here. Yeah.